Hi friends, I'm Rob Voigt, and this is Protopia. This is a series of conversations with the people that are envisioning a better world and making it our new reality. We'll be talking about successes and failures, about next steps and those important first steps, and the inspirations and journeys that have brought us together in this time, in this place. And we'll find out where we go from here. Today, I'm speaking with Adam Bienenstock. He is joyously iconoclastic, challenging systems, institutions, and people to understand the world in a better way. One that integrates meaningful access to nature across all our life courses, and particularly for the young. He has consulted, envisioned, designed, and built natural playgrounds around the world, in each case striving to leave behind more than just completed projects, but also an understanding that our connection to nature is not a problem we have to solve for, but that in fact, in nature, we will find the solutions to our most pressing challenges. Through storytelling, gifting his knowledge to others, and focusing on outcomes while allowing processes to be dynamic, Adam is driving to do his best to make the world a better place for his children and ours alike. Here is my conversation with my good friend and mentor, Adam Bienenstock. Hey buddy, good morning. How you doing? I'm good. It's nice to see you, man. Now, my brother has a great quote. He says, uh, we may not be able to hug anymore, but we can still love each other. So, uh, uh, so I guess over, over the screen. We're lucky enough. We live in a pretty good part of the world. All things considered, there are people out there that are dealing with, with things that are worse, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it, it seems like uh, this unfortunate circumstance has really highlighted what you were saying we needed for so long. How has that changed kind of your view and, and, and what you're dealing with? Because people are, I think, desperate to, to find those kinds of solutions now. I think people are looking for connections now in the absence of real connection and you know, the irony being us doing this this way. But I think that people are starting to understand. I mean, COVID's a, a catalyst for all kinds of things. It's forcing us to think hard about what our own priorities are. And everybody is reevaluating what their priorities are. You know, I was on the road for five, six months a year prior to this, and I don't miss it. It turns out my wife has raised some really nice children. And, and I like them. <laughs> They like me, you know, I've spent my whole career not being around for them while I try and open up better opportunities for other people's kids in other towns. For me, what was interesting is five years ago, we, we made a concerted effort to stop talking about connection to nature as the reason that we do our work. It's the purpose of our work, but we stopped talking about it because that wasn't getting us there. What was getting us there was finding out what it is that is the most difficult problem that someone has to solve at their end. What is the thing? If you're a superintendent, it was bullying rates, aggressive behaviors, kids acting out, unsettled, unable to focus. So we can provide a solution to that. Changing that conversation from nature being something we had to solve, that connection to nature being a problem to solve, and turning that conversation to nature being a solution to whatever your problems really are, your biggest problems of the day. And then using a data-based, research-based approach to that changed everything for the business. And we were suddenly doing, you know, five, 10 times the work when we started to try to solve the problems of the day using this as a tool, using this connection to nature piece as a tool. And that set us up for COVID. And if you think about COVID right now, people are looking for solutions. What do I do to boost my immune system? What do I do to feel better? Because the anxiety is just too much right now. What do I do to feel some sort of connection? And the answers do lie outside. What do I do to reduce transmission rates? The answer lies outside. So that that change in perspective, I think, has been, um, and the fact that we were able to make that shift years ago has opened up a crazy amount of opportunity. Some of it is is the, the communication, the messaging. You can't move people just with facts, right? Yeah. You need to be able to, you know, touch them at something that really, really moves them viscerally. Yeah, you have to find that piece that resonates and, and then talk about that. Why was that important to you? Why do you remember that? Why are we talking about that experience that you remember as your favorite experience? These little things that we can hang on to and, and how would you feel if no kid ever had that opportunity 
never had that experience, what would they be missing? If that was the case, how would that have changed you? These are conversations that we have to get to, the little triggers that we can use to get to the meaningful stuff. You want to ask why I do what I do because I'm, I promised when my kids were being born that I would have an answer for them when they turned 14 and ask me what the hell my generation did to the planet because that was clearly going to be a question. And they asked it three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I needed to be able to say, I've done everything I could do to help to solve this. And I was not in that position 15, 20 years ago. You know, the year that we ended up having our first kid, that's the year that this became a very serious focused mission. And, you know, 3,000 projects later, I can actually answer that question with a smile on my face saying dad did everything he could. Now, that's my motivation. That is not. I'm only 10%. There's only 10% of folks in Canada or the U.S. that think of the environment as the number one cause. You better be prepared to have a conversation about the other 90% of the people out there, or you're never going to move the needle. In some circles, you know, it goes without saying, but I, I think it is worthwhile mentioning that it's about meeting people where, where they're at, right? You need to understand how they're framing things. Sometimes if, you, if you're not willing to do that extra work to figure that out, you may be projecting an assumption on them that you're not agreeing. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, yeah, you're actually just, you're not actually talking about the same thing. Your frame is different. Uh, and so if you can shift that and do the work on yourself, as opposed to just try harder and nerd them to death with facts, because... <laughs> Right. All that makes it makes them angry with you and makes you want to lose your cool. Right. So what do you do? And let's face it, the environmental movement is filled with the self-righteous. That is not a great position. If you want to see someone change and the only way that you can accept their changes is if they admit that they have been wrong for the last 20 years, then they will never change. The conversation has to shift from. What is it that's important to that person that, ha- that you need to see change? The facilities manager for the school board, the head of forestry for the city, the head of planning, the compliance officer for ADA compliance, uh, the risk management group, the insurance company. What do they need to see? They don't need to hear me preach to them why they've been wrong for the last 20 years. Whether I believe it or not, it's irrelevant. The goalposts have moved. The goalposts have moved. We're in a different situation today than we were 20 years ago. The things that we have to deal with and we have to address right now are totally different from what they were. And it's not their fault that they were the ones doing a perfect job on the goalposts where they were 20 years ago. We all have to now start to talk about how the goalposts moved. That's not your fault. You were awesome. Goalposts have moved now. We have epidemics of ADHD and stress disorders. We have epidemics of lack of contact with nature that is resulting in immune system deficiencies across our cities. We have kids who no longer have the core skills for numeracy and literacy across North America in record numbers. These are things that we have to change the way we're behaving in public space in order to address. That was not the job of a parks manager 20 years ago. Yeah, and and it's and it really comes down to that. There is no right and wrong. It really is, is okay, what, what is the circumstance we're in and, and how do we move forward? And there is an awful lot of common ground for your work to have a lasting impact. And it is unique because you do come in and you literally construct things. Yeah. How or is there a way that that doesn't just become an edifice to an, an idea that happened at one time, yeah. but that you could come back to a community and say, wow, look, this changed a direction at the local level or, or, or beyond. Yeah. I mean, because we want, I mean, ultimately, if for me to achieve my goal, I need to have a generation of kids and teachers and parents and communities to fall in love with the same things I fell in love with. Now, human beings are monument builders, and I'm aware of that. So we will get paid to build the monument. We'll get paid to create the spectacular, beautiful, natural space that people go, ooh, I want my name on that. And we're wired that way for that stuff. But that doesn't get us there. We just signed a $5 million natural playground in Illinois uh, in a place called Normal. Great people, 
it's a classic uh, small town in, in the U.S. And it's a classic standard looking school, one story, you know, a few hundred kids, elementary school, 16 acre site. Now, the thing I'm most proud of is not the fact that we're going to build a $5 million natural playground. It's awesome. But I'm proud because we have a three-year funding deal for an ongoing hired maintenance person who's going to be part of the unionized staff of that school board, who is going to be with us from the beginning of that project. Because if I'm going to be friends with these people in three years, if this is going to create a generational shift, then they need to have institutional memory of this project built in from the beginning. We need to be able to teach the teachers how to use the space because they do not share my experience as I a kid, when I was a kid. Young teachers do not share my nostalgia for spending eight hours a day in the creek. So we need to actually be able to show them how to teach in this space so that they understand how to deliver the pedagogy. All of those aspects are layered into this. We have a standard policy now that we've written into this process with the school where we will shut down the entire site for half an hour a day to bring different classes and students out to talk to them about exactly why we're doing this today. Why did we dig this big hole? What is this drainage doing? What are the, why does that matter? You know, why are we planting the meadow? What's in the meadow? Why is that historical context important? Those conversations are going to happen throughout this build. So the process, it was always product. And playgrounds in particular have become a product-focused thing. Here's a catalog, pick your stuff, and we'll drop it in. Here's your budget, here's your catalog, here's three dots, put them on some pages, we're done. That's not what this is. If you want to do a sustainable change, you have to think about you know, what the engagement's going to look like over the entire build and over the lifetime and over the maintenance side. And how do you turn it all into a community engagement instead of just, here's a cool thing, go play on it. That's interesting. And, and you and I have had some chances to work together. You know, we're trying to kind of entertain ourselves in, in some of the process and bring people together. And right, I, I still remember, I think the first time we worked together, we decided to do an on-site meeting for Future Park. Yeah. Um, but to not just have the drawings on site, we actually took spray paint and painted uh, essentially a, a, a one-to-one drawing on, on the ground of yeah. where the stuff was going to be boy, did that shift people's perspectives. And for us, it was, and, and I'm glad to hear that, I mean, you're still doing that. And I think it's rare. I always believe that if you're dealing with things that are inherently related to community and community right. building, the process itself should have value on recognizing and uplifting capacity. And that way there has been a productive change. And so you create a ground level of, anything beyond this is going to be fantastic. So it's not just the execution of watch the experts do their magic. It's somehow be involved and shift perspectives, create capacity where it wasn't recognized and move people because you want them to be able to do the next thing that you won't be part of. At least that's what I'm assuming. That's that's my perspective. No, no. And it goes well beyond that. When we started natural playground work in North America, by the way, some of my favorite times were in those wacky moments that we spent together where we met each other because we believed so deeply in process mattering more than product and engagement being the key to the success of anything that we did, uh, short-term, long-term, because buy-in matters. So you're asking people to change. Mm-hmm. But when we started when I in, in this natural playground, I mean, every reference was coming out of Scandinavia or somewhere else. It was not coming from North America. Mm-hmm. And we were cherry picking data to try and support this because we knew inherently it was good. And I happen to have the weird background with my dad as an immunologist who is the world expert on how a biodiverse environment affects your immune system. I was already all in. But when we started that stuff, there was no one to compete with us on the few projects that were available. That actually was not okay. It meant that you couldn't do significant projects because there was no industry or no standard or no people even doing this work. And that was a problem. So we started to train people. We started to train competition, the cities, the teachers. And the more we trained people on how to do this, saying, here's everything we got. Here's all of our stuff. Here's our specs. 
go online today, you can still get all of our specs for free and load anything. And we encourage people to build it on their own. That created a footprint in industry that we could now work within. And the people we compete against today, many of those companies have been trained by us. Yeah, you know, that, that, that's good, again, because you're looking at it and, and you're exhibiting the importance of the work by trying to drive what others would see as a movement, right? If, yeah. you, tr if you know, if you can trust in yourself that the current great idea you have isn't the last one you're ever going to have, yeah. then, then, then you don't need to protect it. It's been my philosophy. It's so funny you say that. So I have a former partner in this business that, I, that I'm in. He said, what are you doing? You're giving everything we do. You're giving it all away. And I said, no, I'm giving everything that we did away. <laughs> yeah. You know, that because we have to keep on reinventing and doing better and, and bringing the, raising the bar. I want, as a business person, I want to be competing in the top 10% of an industry that is robust. When I started, it was grab everything you can because there's nothing to do. Because people aren't convinced that there is actually enough of a loss or a reason to change yet. But clearly we were seeing this 10, 15 years ago that there was a problem and that this was going to get worse before people recognized that it was important. And then, uh, you know, you, you flash forward to today, people are recognizing that there's a problem. Cities are being driven to do these nature-based solutions, biodiverse solutions, because more people are starting to be aware that there is a, a problem if their kids never touch or feel anything in a sensory way. I think kids are a great motivator for parents. If parents start to see that their kids are suffering or not doing as well as other kids, then they want some of that. Yeah. So now we're getting calls from cities going, I need your training, man, because we're just getting hammered by the community who say they want to do a natural playground. I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to start. And frankly, I don't want to do it because everything's going to fall apart. Everything will rot. It's not going to work. And you seem to be doing some of this. So train us on what we need to know. It's begrudging change being driven by parents right now. So now I think the real job at this point is to be able to feed the memories and the nostalgia of the people who are, you know, old and gray like me, who are in the positions of power in these cities to embrace this because um, they all took their jobs because they actually had a great experience outside or in teaching or in learning. And they're every one of the things that they deal with now are soul sucking and miserable. And there is a much better, more fun thing that they could be doing. I just, uh, I think that too much of our uh, professional careers has been a, about standards and drudgery and not about experience and change and happiness and joy. And most of the grown-ups, I have a sign across the mantle here that says grown-ups suck because we're the problem. We make things hard. My favorite things that I've ever done, my favorite projects have been we're released from all the bounds of the ASTM or the CSA compliance or the ADA compliance. And we're just creating experiences for kids. The pop-up work that you do in a day sometimes has more meaning to those kids. Yeah. I think, I just think that we're in, we're in a moment where people are seeing it. People are driving it. People are wanting that change for their kids. In this conversation, I would maybe say that it's, it's organizations that suck yeah. right so organizations and committees are where ideas go to die yeah right? we report people poorly and and you see this a lot and i know you've done work in australia and new zealand but you know the whole pop-up movement here of of uh place making and that uh it, you know a lot of it started down in, in australia but even here when it comes to small community groups so what you know the the typical grassroots thing People are always very quick to be, they're all in, right? Because they don't, they don't know about all the rules, right? Now, some of those rules do matter because they are there for a reason, but yeah. they're solutions focused and they want to do things. Whereas organizations want to control things. And unfortunately, that control tends to skew towards need for perfection, need for absolute consensus. And both of those in practice then result in doing very little, if anything. 
Yeah, I think it actually goes beyond that. I think that one of, one of the big issues in these larger organizations in large cities is if if you put your neck out, if you stick your neck out for something different, you have a much higher likelihood of getting your head chopped off. That is the reality in some of these larger organizations. Why take the risk? This risk-averse change can't occur without taking risk. Advancement doesn't occur without taking risk. That is true of kids and how they play. It's true of grown-ups and organizations. Organizations are failing because they get to the point where they don't reward risk-taking. They don't reward failure in any way. So I could do a natural playground. I could do a, a change the way we do a park becomes or, and if it doesn't get received well, and if the Facebook response isn't good enough or positive enough, then I'll lose my job and my pension. Or I could do nothing and keep my job and my pension. That is not an inspiring way to live a life. And that's not going to create change. There's no way of promoting change in large cities while that's the model. Well, and it's it's interesting too, because in those same organizations where when they also come together with others, there is so much talk about innovation. But the reality is you can't have the innovation without the risk and doing something different, but they're not set up to get it. How do we kind of leverage that? And again, it's not about being wrong. They're just different systems. Yeah. And they're, they're both trying to, in many ways, get to the same point. And one has constrained themselves so much that they'll never reach it. Yeah. I, I don't know how, to, I mean, innovation models fail if you don't reward failure. As soon as we have a system where all failure is bad, then new ideas go to those systems to die. That's the way that is. For meaningful change to occur, there has to be a leadership in place that allows for that, that accepts that there may be some failure. The good news is that on this idea of connection to nature in our cities, any reasonable metric of child development, community development that you might put out there, risk of injury, balance and agility scores, STEM scores, attention and focus spans, ADHD, Crohn's, type 1 diabetes, cancers, whether it's a physical or emotional numeracy, literacy, any one of these things, community cohesiveness, resilience amongst our kids, empathy scores, any one of these metrics we win on as we become more connected to nature in those cities. The connection to nature piece solves for these things. And we have great data around this. Where we make fear-based decisions, we will continue to fail. Where we make fact-based decisions, we will win. The data is in. We've built 3,000 of these things, and we have yet to have a single claim of injury on any playground we've ever built. Never happened. That makes us an anomaly. We still pay six figures for our insurance, uh, which I'm really <laughs> pleased about. Uh, but that's the reality of this. You know, we're in the various different studies where you're looking in Knoxville or whether you're looking in Winnipeg, depending where you look at the comparator between sensory deprived, not natural, fully paved, cleansed sites, rubber, plastic, steel, between 30 and 40 times less likely to have a hospital visit per 10,000 hours of use, between 30 and 40 times lower injury rates when you move to this natural environment. The more the sensory engagement is, the higher that is, the less likely you are to injure. And yet we are up against it on every project where they're saying, well, I'm really worried if you do that, we're going to injure people. But the data isn't even close. And I, it's, it's miles apart, this sensory engagement piece. And I don't want to call it that connection to nature. I do want to call it sensory engagement. If you look at a space, this isn't hard. Are you hitting all of your senses? Because if you're not, your space sucks. So improve that. And if you improve that, you will do more nature. And the more you do that, the better you do on every other score. So now we talk to people about outcomes, not about inputs. What are the outcomes you're looking for? What do you want out of this? Like what? What inspiring moment do you want for your kid? What is the outcome that you want? Do you want them to be healthier, happier, more aware? Do you want them to do better in school? What's the outcome you want? Because I can help with that. That's what this project is. It's not a tree hug and green thing that we're doing. We're going to improve the outcomes that you care about. So now the conversation is fun. Conversation at that point is all about what are the things that you want most for your kids, your community, yourself? What would improve your life? So this year, 
in the big rethink this year, those outcomes matter to everybody. So we're all thinking about outcomes. So not surprisingly, our phone lights up. We offer an outdoor classroom. We have 10,000 people who want it. 10,000 different schools. We're getting slaughtered with people wanting access to this, with teachers wanting to have a better outcome because they're all thinking about it. I really think that we're in a moment where we can grab hold of this and force ourselves to start to build into our, our standards, our innovation models, our, how we manage our cities and our organizations, an outcome-based model. If we shift to that, change is not hard. We can drive to the outcome. You got to frame it right. You're talking about the senses and that, and you've done some work that is well beyond the framework of these playscapes and naturescapes. Yeah. I do know that you have aspirations and ideas about what this looks like in building whole communities. You know, I'm very much in line with that, with my background too. So, you know, what does that look like? Uh, uh, yeah. You know, when do you get to start making that real? First off, I think our financial reward models for how we build communities are, are all messed up. We do not think long-term. And I, I mean, I, I, see a, I see a brighter future in it because long-term is becoming shorter and shorter term. As a, as a hundred-year storm becomes a five-year storm and a three-year storm and a two-year storm, if we move away from natural systems, we become less resilient and the impacts are felt by the people who paid for the original installation. We are... Sadly, because of the environmental situation that we're in and climate change, you know, you move to places like Denver or Houston, this is a now thing where every year you're having massive floods and hurricanes and billions of dollars in damages. Well, you can't build new communities without considering these things. So I actually am optimistic for the change in how we develop our cities because of how pessimistic I am on the immediate effects and the real effects of climate change. That's sad and somehow hopeful at the same time, and I'm, I'm not sure how to reconcile it. But I don't think the systems are complicated. If you think through 10,000 years ago, before we got here, how those floods would be dealt with, how that those extreme weather events would be dealt with, how the water gets shed across a, a community, how it drains, and you set up a community around those natural systems and biophilic design is becoming a more thoughtful and more real process. Well, then you end up with living systems and better places where people want to live. You think about the most popular places that there are to live in, they all have trees, big trees. They all have water that moves through those cities. They have embraced natural systems and the ones that don't, are not the most popular ones to end up in. So I, I do think that there is, uh, and I know we've done some of this work together, and there's a direct financial impact. There's a way to sell the houses for more money if we pay, pay attention to the natural systems and build around, start with the nature piece, and then build around those pieces. You end up with a product that will sell for more money to those people who are interested in those outcomes. We collectively have known this. I've yet to see any list of great places to live where the criteria were, um, you know, really nice stormwater plan and 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 water prisons, you know, and lots of parking. That's yeah. that's not the best places to be. And the happiest places in the world are the places where that's not true. Yeah, where that's part of it. You go, you know, where are the happiest people on the planet? Where you're going to end up in Iceland? You're going to end up end up in Copenhagen where they're riding bikes and closing streets to cars. It's always been staggering to me uh, when you have these meetings, uh, usually in some sort of municipal forum, and there's an acceptance of those are great places to visit. But here in North America, we're like, but we don't deserve that here. We don't want to literally bring that home. Everyone's like, I love it. I love it. But it can't happen here. And so it's almost this defeatist approach to, well, we couldn't do that because you are focused on outcomes, you can run towards that challenge with the optimism. Yeah. Because otherwise you, you end up with despair, which is equated with fear. And as you even mentioned, you can't make good decisions based from fear. It's immobilizing. 
And and the climate the problem with this climate change conversation, one of the reasons why the environment conversation is not one that I spend a lot of time in um, is because it's immobilized. But if I talk about connecting people to nature, if I talk about increasing um, kids' ability to do well when they get to university or to feel better about themselves or reducing bullying or increasing empathy or reducing teen suicide or tell me your subject, we need to change for the better. We can do this together. I've sat in a meeting with one of the state leads for the NRA, the top nature connection person, a big developer who just does subdivisions, and me being a natural playground guy, and we sat around a table at a conference and everybody agreed. Now they shouldn't, oh, there's a Greenpeace person there too, which I love that the NRA and the Greenpeace person were at the table. We can have the same conversation about the same desired outcomes. And in fact, and as long as you're focused on that, you can agree that the developer should be having more natural space. You can agree that the NRA actually needs to have wildlife to be alive. Ducks Unlimited are one of those groups because otherwise there is nothing to hunt. There are common threads that we can actually come together around when we talk about the outcomes for our kids. So for my sake right now, I look at the stuff as a crisis that we're in because each day we have less and less time on the clock to make changes happen. So for today, I am going to celebrate the guy in the Hummer, the granddad in the Hummer with the gun rack who brings his kids into the woods to teach him how to shoot turkey. I'm going to celebrate that guy because those kids will learn to love nature too. Because that's my win. I can talk about how many angels to fit on the head of the pin later because we have to have 40, 50% of the society to change towards these systems before we can start to have that angels on the head of the pin conversation. I, I don't have patience for it. I think that's one of the challenges that particularly we have in Canada, given the size of our country and, and how much there is in terms of just the landmass of areas that are still you know, measurably, at least in, in some form of, of wild spaces yeah, and yeah. nature spaces, but be, but we're probably per capita, one of the most urbanized countries. And there's that challenge of how do we create that connection again in those most urban centers? Because if you don't, if you don't love it, you're not going to protect it. And all our attention has been to the wild places. Access to those now has become far more stratified based on, on wealth which then, of course, that brings in issues of socioeconomic and, and, and racial and cultural things in there as well. But it really means that only the wealthy have access to it. You know, we run a real challenge there of how do we how do we get to that point, knowing the irony that the two things that we seem to do the most in Canada in terms of celebration and, and our, quote, branding are things related to nature and things related to our First Nations communities. Yeah, and sure. I'm willing to say on both of those, boy, are we failing. Yeah. Uh, right. So, yeah, so it, it, it was a great branding exercise, but damn, we got to step it up. Yeah. And and I think there is a, a it's funny how many conferences I've been to where, where people uh, uh, present on how the problem's been solved. And I'm like, um, maybe in this group that's at this conference, but not in the world. There was a time in my life where I was deeply concerned about the fact that 52 was the average age of visitor to Parks Canada, that the average age of member of the local botanic gardens was 71, that that's a problem because that means that these people are literally dying off. And I used to really be deeply concerned about that. And I am less concerned about that, not because it's not an issue to solve, but because I can't solve that problem if people have moved to a sterilized city. They will not seek that experience out unless they have it locally. And I can tackle the local problem. I cannot tackle the local problem by talking about it in these giant, great, big terms of the planet, of our national heritage. I can't solve all of those things. But I can actually give them a moment where they have a specific outcome that is important to them that improves directly as a result of the work we do or a worse outcome if we don't. That I can do, because that becomes a gateway experience and starts to help to solve those other things. You know, there's a matrix approach to this, where all of the ages of people are down one side and all across the, the other axis, there is a number of different experiences. And 
if the goal out of here is someone who loves the planet, loves each other, is a community-minded person, is reaching their full potential, has a great immune system, then we have to pick the part of that matrix that we can hit, that we can do well in, that we can affect. But the idea that anyone's going to be able to fill in that whole thing just isn't the case. So we have to become better at collaborating with other organizations, better at teaching, and better at listening. And when I think about First Nations communities, there is a, a heritage there that is better for listening. The biggest lessons I've learned in working with Indigenous people is to become a better listener and to spend more time really hearing what it is that they want as a community and then helping to fit a solution specifically to them. I think that we have, as a society, become uh, less skilled at listening to one another. That's tough for professionals just generally. We're not taught that. Um, yeah, we, I remember with you, we had a thing where if there was a group of people from the community and and it, and it we'd say, okay, everyone who's an, a landscape architect, put up your hand. All right, you can't be in the same group because nothing will get done. And <laughs> we need to split you up. There's something about the higher level we get on a professional level and the more degrees we get somehow the plague of being an authority on something means that you think that you're right and you stop hearing the other people. Oh yeah. And, and if you add it, you know, add to that certain personality traits that uh, you and I might share, you know, let me tell you about what I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. We and, are and so, on a podcast together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're recognizing that more where this comes from. So it's open for dialogue as opposed yeah. to, I know, I know, I know. Well, there's a very North American model about becoming the, the expert and then the leader in order for anything to happen. You've got to talk to me. Yeah. And the model has to change to how do I give it all away? How do I push it all out to make myself redundant as quickly as I possibly can? How can you transfer the knowledge? And over the next decade, the people who are better at transferring their knowledge will be busier than the yeah. people who are trying to hang on. And it is about uplifting the inherent skills and power that people have. It is really, really challenging. And when you're doing such important work and your work inherently includes the community, it's not just about it not getting done. Then you've undermined that community for doing the work in the future. Yeah, if right? it requires me, it's unsustainable. Yeah. I can, I, I mean, I can help. We've got lots of knowledge. We've failed on all kinds of levels that others could benefit from and not make the same mistakes that we've made. So if I can pass that along instead of trying to keep it tight and own that, the more we do that, the more chance there is that there's gonna be a group of experts that carry the work on. Yeah, and we're not hearing about what the journey was that made someone amazing. I think there's real power in talking about the failures. In each of my slideshows, when I would, you know, you're in a big room and you're giving the big talk, I would show, See this? This was a disaster. Yeah. We did this and it failed miserably. This is what we did to correct it. We got a bit better here. This is why these things were different. This is what I learned about me. This is who taught me that. This is the person I absorbed that from. Because I think that's what people need to hear. So they go, oh, okay. I think people need to see themselves. You know, people do have a fear of failure. So they need to understand that there's success that comes out of that too. Again, creating great communities, great places to live. It's always iterative and incremental change. And messy. Yeah. And that's, a, and that's actually a good thing because it's going to be a, it needs to be a different solution. This is what community character is about. If we have a cookie cutter solution, it's the wrong solution. Do you have a particular failure that really stands out as like a great thing or, but if, if you've got well, one okay, to share. We start and, and we can talk it through. Okay. Well, I, I like the one where you've, how you were going from uh, designing uh, environments for, for people to suddenly they were asking you to help design stuff at a zoo. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, it was hilarious. I mean, we were, we were asked to do some work on a, a baby panda exhibit. As I'm responding to this thing, I'm actually Googling panda habitat because I have no idea what this is about. What's a panda? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, sure, we could do that. Of course we could do that. 
thinking, why on earth are you asking me to do this? This is nuts. And it wasn't until much later, actually. Now, I will say at the end of the story, we did not build anything for the panda exhibit for a series of reasons around a large organization and what that looks like and feels like and how, you know, by the time we got to the other end, there was no project. But the story that came out of that has been interesting to me. It's the powerful bit of it was, why would you talk to me? I had been on a systematic lit review of outdoor risky play. So we understood where all of the injuries occurred and we understood the difference between the learning injury and catastrophic injury. A lot of people involved in that. The idea of risky play was coming out of the reason we were called was because it turns out that pandas are all raised in captivity nowadays, and there's some in the wild. And there is this thing when they're reaching adolescence that they were having these big, more serious breaks, these critical problems with how they were being injured. Pandas cost a crazy amount of money to keep alive. It's nuts. You got to bring, got to fly in bamboo every day. They only eat the fresh bamboo, 80% of it they throw away because they're picky. So if you're trying to do this in like Canada, that's a plane load of uh, bamboo every day. So by the time you're done, it's a million bucks a year at least to keep a baby panda alive at your zoo. So you want to protect that asset. So what do you do? You do soft fall surfaces. You make things compliant with all of the regulations for humans and remove as much of that risk as you possibly can. So that's what they did. Well, what was happening is that as they were reaching adolescence, they were having these major injuries. And it was because they never had any of the learning injuries along the way. So that's what they were interested in. And the reason I got the call is because the similarities between our research, which is showing if you bubble wrap those kids for long enough, and if you make them avoid any bumps, bruises, scrapes, any learning injuries along the way, they will injure themselves catastrophically later. So what they found when they looked at the ones in captivity, the, the pandas in captivity versus the ones that were growing, uh, living in the wild, because they have x-rays of all of these things, green stick fractures, when bones would bend and not break when they were young, were in all of the x-rays of the ones living in the wild. They had fallen and hurt themselves and gone, I am not doing that again. And if you take that experience away, the injuries become more severe and more often later on in life. What was cool about that was when I talk about that for pandas, people listen about that and understand that has a, a powerful correlation to how they look at their own kids. If I talk about that in kids, they don't listen to me. That story has helped create more change and have people relate to that and understand that and agree with that. It's interesting, the failures that, that actually turn into inspiration. It highlights a few things. One is the answer to how is yes. And then the process itself is, is a learning experience. And then I think kind of the way this conversation started, it's allowed you to take that story and shift how you communicate about how you're getting the message across on the connection to nature and why it's important. And yet one of the most powerful stories you have where people understand it is not even to talk about people. There's layers of, of inspiration and irony and beauty in this. Well, and I think we live in stories. I mean, I, I also think that if you can describe the full experience of something to someone and feel that emotion and transfer that, that happens in storytelling. Storytelling is, is a much better way. It's a much less sort of preachy way to convince Storytelling often has a villain or has a problem and has a solution. And there might be a bit of irony or humor in the midst of all of that. And people find themselves or picture themselves in a part of those stories. I had a city that I was working in and, and they told me that we weren't allowed to put in pine trees. And the reason why we weren't allowed to put pine, pine trees in and they wanted them out of the design was, and I have a letter from them, which I covet. I love this letter because it says you can't put the pine trees in Canada's national tree. You can't put the pine trees in because those pine cones are really big and they might fall on a kid's head. So I got to do a presentation and I went in and I did my presentation. And I just want to say thank you to everyone in the parks department for this letter. It's a fantastic letter. No, you're right. Of course, uh, the group of seven we're wrong to celebrate the pine tree. It's a dangerous tree. 
We should stop using this tree. We should pick a less dangerous tree as our national symbol, our national <laughs> tree. <laughs> well done. Thank you uh, for, for your, your smart life. One person in the group had his head in his hands going, oh, no, stop. <laughs> Understanding I was kidding. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> the group of others were nodding their head. And I said, come on, you got to you well, gotta laugh at this. This is nuts. Obviously, this is nuts. And yeah. uh, through joking about it and being sarcastic, we got through it. And they have pine trees there. And no one has died from the impact of the pine cone. I mean, I think we got to laugh at ourselves because we get stuck in these endless cycles. It's about that loss of perspective. What are we giving up for this supposed betterment or, or different kind of risk or what have you, right? Yeah, well, that compared to what piece is the other part of the argument that always helps you. So there is a tendency in public space to say one injury is too many injuries. One bad outcome is too many bad outcomes. And the truth is, this is on a scale. If you do nothing, what will the outcomes? We can predict the outcomes by doing nothing. Well, it turns out I'm more than 10 times more likely to injure a kid on a straight paved site than I am by putting in the worst playground I possibly could. And then I'm 30 to 40 times better doing a better playground in terms of those injury rates. So we can't say one injury is too many injuries. So we just had a problem as an example, working with uh, Cal Academy. So this is out in Golden Gate State Park. Amazing people, fantastic group, awesome natural site. You know, sadly, a, a kid had fallen on a stump that they'd set up and he, and he slipped. He broke his arm. And that's bad. It was someone who was doing some tree work. It was sitting off in the corner. The kid saw it and went for it and set something up. And so I, I asked, so how many injuries happen on things that are not sensory, that are not movable? What happens if we do nothing? And the answer is when you do nothing, more kids get injured. There are higher injury rates if we do nothing than if we do something, anything. So the idea of an insurance person saying, when in doubt, rip it out, actually increases risk, actually makes the outcomes worse. So before we just answer, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, no stumps ever. That's the reaction. And yet in the Presidio, just around the corner, they're building out things that allow more people to engage because they're tracking long-term results and they're comparing it to what it would be if they did nothing. And when you make that comparison, you end up actually doing better by doing something. So compared to what has to be part of every one of these debates, it can't be zero. There's no such thing as zero. There is a baseline that we have to do better than. That even comes up even with, with community building. Just because we have framed the current project as you know, this is the start, it's gonna have a middle and an end, if we accept that we're part of this community building perspective, the start was a long time ago. We're, we're in the middle of something that's happening, right? There's always been something that happened before. For one thing, it helps relieve some of the pressure from people. And as you said, it really helps them understand how that current incremental change is gonna have an impact on, on the bigger picture. These are, shifts that are incredibly powerful. You, you find these moments, these opportunities when people are ready to hear how it could be better. We worked on an urban farm and it was nothing. It was an old landing strip in statistically what is the highest needs, highest crime neighborhood in Hamilton and, uh, or was, it's past tense now. And we were building out an urban farm. We were planting it up and we were turning it to an organic farm and we were, we put in windmills, we dug stormwater uh, collection ponds in order to get the water to water farm from the site. It was a great project and it took a lot of community engagement along the way. And I was talking to a local guy who was walking his dog along the edge of the spot just as we were beginning. And he looked at me and he goes, this will never work. And I said, Okay, so why would why do you say that? He said, I've, I've lived here for 30 years. This never worked. So I said, okay, well, so what's happened over the last 30 years? He's just gotten worse and worse and worse. 
you know, the community now are just going to tear it up. They don't like each other. No one talks to each other. I feel scared and living in, in this place. Um, and this thing's just going to get torn up. And I said, well, what have you been involved in in the last decade that has made a difference? And he goes, well, nothing. I said, well, how's that been working for you? <laughs> and he looked at me and snarled a little. <laughs> and I think it's okay to put, to nudge people and make them uncomfortable in the conversation and make them accountable. I said, you know what? The truth is, this doesn't work. We just got to try something else. And if that doesn't work, then we got to try something else. And we got to keep on trying until this stuff gets better because it's not okay to leave it the way it is. And two years later, when that facility was making, was, is now producing 100,000 pounds of food for that local community, that they nurture, that they work the farm, that they collect that food and feed themselves where the houses that surround us that you could have bought for nothing are worth five times what they were. And that is working. And yeah, there are still problems, but that's working. And I met the guy and he's still walking the same dog. And I just walked up to him and he goes, you were right. And I kept walking. And I just think, you know, there is a tendency uh, towards paralysis. And that's not okay. That doesn't solve anything. So let's, let's try it. Let's fail. Let's do the next one. There is a solution to this stuff. I'm going to say that is a perfect place to end this conversation. There is a solution out yeah. there. And we're going to be moving yeah. incrementally to make that real. Yeah. As always, my friend, this was uh, fantastic. I hope we can do this again and kind of share <laughs> yeah, more well, of your stories talking, with whoever may be listening. There's only going to be more. <laughs> crazy stories as our as our lives go on we're, we're fully stuck in it's yeah. great work man we do we have great jobs we get to do this stuff yeah it's uh wildly rewarding there are so many challenges to run towards thanks for uh, having me on but it's nice to nice to see you this was fun as shit i can tell you that that was good <laughs>